Well, good morning. It's good to be with you once again. And you know, I do still covet your prayers for our time today. As I talk to you about putting your hope in God. <clears throat> and I invite you to turn to uh, Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 5. And I'll lead us in a time of prayer. Please bow with me. Father, when we look at your creation, we can only praise you for your awesome power and your handiwork. We thank you for giving us your word so that we can know about you, your works, and your mission in this world. We thank you for sending your son to die while we were yet in our sin. Thank you for allowing us to gather once again in your name. We commit this time of worship in the word to you. Would you bless this time? Would you take these feeble words of mine and use it for your glory and the building up of the body? Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you remember, some of you who are not so young, when uh, direct deposit was first initiated and the major banks as part of their marketing strategy would set up tables at corporations, especially corporations with lots of employees, and they would offer you direct deposit and tell you about the different accounts. And many other employees would sign up. Obviously, it's a pretty good deal. But there were a few employees who didn't. And some of them had never even used a bank before. They were not interested in learning a new way of doing things. And some of them even thought that, well, you know, banks and things like that are for people with really big incomes, not the average Joe. And their plan? Just go to a currency exchange like they normally do. Then payday comes. Now, the people who had direct deposit, they have access to their funds, usually the night before payday. But those who didn't, they would wait to receive a paper check. And then they would wait in line at the currency exchange. And for a nominal fee, they would finally get their cash. Then for an additional fee, they can convert their cash to money orders to pay their bills. And what remained was, well, it was subject to theft, loss, or just frivolous spending. Now, how much better would it have been if they were willing to learn about the bank's program for checking accounts, for savings accounts? How much more of their hard-earned money and their precious time could they have used for better purposes? In some respects, these people remind me of the Israelites. And the Israelites were the original recipients of our passage today. Moses wrote Genesis and actually the, the first five books of the Bible during the time when Israel was wandering through the desert. 
They were wandering because they had failed to believe God the first time when they were told to go into the promised land. You don't have to turn there, but the details of that episode begin in uh, Numbers 13. And many of you are probably familiar with that. It's when the 12 12 spies um, were to go and check out the land, and they were going to come back and tell the people what they saw. Now all the spies come back, all the spies agree, you know what? This land is everything it, it was promised. But there was another point that they didn't all agree on. Ten of the 12 spies were overwhelmed by what they thought as challenges um, in possessing the land. Now, the multitude of people um, were swayed by the 10 who gave this alarming report. And they concluded, there's no way we can take that land. They said things like, we're grasshoppers to those people. It's too much for us. And then they turned and asked Moses and Aaron, why did you bring us out here to die? Now, God had told them the land was flowing with milk and honey. And God had told them, I want you to go possess the land. And they had confirmed that the land was, in fact, flowing with milk and honey. But they would not believe that they could go and possess it. There was much grumbling by the people regarding God's intentions and his ability. And because of their disbelief, God caused them to wander in the desert for 40 years. You kind of see that picture? So they were in need of correction and encouragement. Joshua and Caleb were the only two to believe God's whole message. And except for them, God had declared that the people would wander until all the current disbelieving generation had died. So some of, the, some of them were actually not going to make it into the promised land. They needed a reason to hope. And Moses could only direct them to put their hope in God. Moses could only point them to the history of God working his plan from the beginning of, from the beginning, beginning until the present time. And what I want us to come away with this morning is that our hope must lie in God. Why? Because he's good. And he is working his plan. I want us to know that no matter what we see with our eyes, God is yet sovereign. And he has not forgotten us, and he will never forsake us. The book of Genesis begins with this creation account. And from verses 1-1 through chapter 2, verse 4, Moses zooms in quickly, taking us from the heavens to the earth to the land with its plants, trees, birds, and beasts, and finally to man, both male and female. After giving a summary of the first week, Moses spotlights the creation of man. He then moves on to his placement in the garden where he was given rules of engagement, um, talks about his work, and then 
he goes into the first marriage. And all of this shows the power of God, who made a world out of nothing. And it shows the wisdom of God, who set all things in perfect order. And it shows the loving care of God as he provides everything that man needs to bring him glory. And we'll start in verse 5 with the spotlight on the creation of man. And that reads, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Now, one of the first things to remember when looking at this section, God has no intrinsic need to create anything. He doesn't have to create man. He's not lonely. Okay? He's complete within himself. I like to read C.S. Lewis. <laughs> and in one of the books, C.S. Lewis says, and this was actually from the Four Loves, he said, he is the only host that creates his own parasites. <laughs> God needs nothing. We, on the other hand, need him all day, every day. And it pleases him to give of himself to us, his creation. Now, God formed the man of dust from the ground. What's put you in the mind of a potter working with clay? And from chapter um, 1 and verse 26, we note that God made man in his own image. And this isn't said about any other creature. God made man to be a manager over his creation, and he made him to be in relationship with God. And the creation account is not just a recitation of facts. It's carefully worded to show that God had man in mind as he created everything else. It is good carries with it the idea that it is good for the man. Um, and the message, so the message to the Israelites when they read this is, is understanding that man is a special part of God's creation and therefore a special part of God's plan. And as being created in God's image, he is not just another type of animal. And he is, he's been given a, a position of authority, and uh, he, he, came into the, he came into an earth, that was already prepared for his arrival. And, and that's key for the Israelites because they were going to a land that God told them was prepared. He told them it was flowing with milk and honey. They weren't going to have to start from scratch and, and create something. <coughs> they just needed to put their hope in God and trust that he would get them to Canaan. Now, in our times, it's good for us to know that God intentionally created man. There's all kinds of competing ideas about the origins of man. 
the question of, you know, where are we with respect to the animals? You know, are the apes really our cousins? Okay, there's, you know, question of are we slaves to, quote unquote, Mother Earth? Okay, or is it as the Bible says, we were created as stewards of God's creation? Um, and we know also that the Bible is not a science textbook, okay? But as Francis Schaeffer says, while it doesn't give us exhaustive truth, it does give us true truth, okay? So we can believe it on the accounts that it does speak to. So let us trust God's account, that he made us special for himself and for his glory, and we are very much a part of his plans in this world. So, what we have so far is man is special, and I mean that in a good way. And God has a place for him to engage in the calling that he has for him. So let's go to verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of the garden to water the garden, and there divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gion, Gion, I'm sorry. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth is the Euphrates. Now God's provision is on display in the beauty and richness of Eden. The image is, image is one of lush, fertile land. God planted a garden in this land. God made the trees to grow. And these trees were good for food and pleasant to look at. And Moses takes the time to mention precious metal and stones in the land. Simply put, it's beautiful and it's functional. The Israelites had been promised a land of their own. The spies themselves, in Numbers 13, said, We came to the land to which you sent us, sent us, It flows with milk and honey. And I'm not sure how milk and honey moves you, but to them, they would see this as a land of plenty. They had brought back a cluster of grapes, some pomegranates, and figs. And it says they brought back a single cluster of grapes. But they had to carry this single cluster of grapes on a pole with two men carrying the pole. And an interesting side note, and please don't go look it up now, but the Israel Department of Tourism, uh, in their logo, there's a depiction of two men carrying a cluster of grapes on a pole. And, um, and Joshua and Caleb had actually said um, that it's an exceedingly good land. 
So Moses reminds them that they have a promise of obtaining the land from the God who created and owns all lands. While there are other nations in the land currently and other nations who may want the land, only Israel was promised the land. And they can rest in that promise. At the time of the spies reporting, Joshua said in Numbers 14 and 9, only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land. And I think in a different way, Moses says the same thing here. Just as easily as God placed the first man in this lush garden, Israel can trust him to place them in the land he promised. And for us, it may not be a fancy address that God provides, but for each of us, there is a place. There's a place for us to minister. There's a place for us to be a testimony to the goodness of Jesus Christ. Our homes, our place of employment, where we eat, shop, work out. There are some who are called to go to faraway places, whether it be, I don't know, Bihar, India, or Sioux Lookout in Canada. Um, and God can prepare for their arrival in those places. And wherever our place is, God will provide what we need. And wherever we go, we have to trust God is good and God is working out his plan. And it's all for his glory. Now, no matter where you go, whether it's here, there, near, or far, you're going to need God's law to guide you. So let's move on to verse 15. <clears throat> the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In chapter 1, <clears throat> the text tells us that man is granted dominion over the rest of creation, or as one commentary put it, he is described as one who has authority. And then in this chapter, um, we see that man is also one who is under authority. And verse 8 has already told us that man had put him in the garden, and then here we're told for what purpose. Verse 15 tells us that the man he created and placed in the garden is to work it and keep it. And the connotation is not simply gardening, okay? But more generally, it carries the idea of worship and serving. Knowing our purpose can help guide us when the law isn't explicit. Knowing that man's work is to care for God's garden would entail much more than which fruit to eat and which fruit not to eat. Okay? If your goal is to please the owner with how you have managed his garden, you will tend to do those activities that are good for the garden and you will avoid those activities that are not. <clears throat> then the laws, on the other hand, inform us specifically what is allowable and what is prohibited. 
And with the prohibition, the code specifies what the penalty would be. Here the man is given two very explicit commands. Of the trees in the garden, and remember these trees are very pleasing to look at and good for food, you may eat, eat freely. And I don't get the impression that this invitation to eat is like, meh, if you want to eat, go ahead. I think it's, I really want you to eat. You must eat. You've got to try it. I made this for you. It's really good. It's good for you. It'll benefit you. On the negative side, there's the prohibition regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God's goodness comes through, actually, in his telling man where the boundaries are. The penalty for disobedience is death. And we don't have to worry about what kind of tree it is or what kind of fruit it was or whether it had special powers or whether it was anything like that. It was just a tree. And the point is that man needed to focus on God, know his law, love him, and obey him. With all the good things the man has received from God, he could start to presume upon God's favor. He could come to believe that God is his buddy and would never be harsh or stern. And this kind of reminded me of the scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, And there was a time when the children are going to meet Aslan for the first time. And they find out from Mr. and Mrs. Beaver that Aslan is a lion, not a man. And they are understandably nervous about going to meet a lion. And Mrs. Beaver remarks, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So our Israelites are not victims of random events. It was their disbelief and disobedience that caused their troubles. But the Almighty God had called lowly Israel to be his people. He chose Israel to work out his perfect plan to bless all nations. God was willing to be identified with Israel. He wanted all the nations to know that he was their God. He provided all all the law they needed to be able to enjoy him and not suffer his wrath. They are reminded that while he is not safe, he is very good. They have not always been obedient children, but he remains faithful. He is God, therefore he he is to be obeyed and he can be trusted. We take comfort in the fact that he remains faithful. God's plan is to redeem and purify a people for himself. 
Sin and death may seem overwhelming to us at times, but in Christ, the chains have been broken and death has no claim on us. Only a good God would devise such a plan of redemption. Only a good God would make the sacrifice of his son at Calvary. God made man special and placed him in a garden made for him. He gave him the rules so that he would know what is good for him and what is bad. And now God engages him in the work to be done. We're at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now in chapter 1, you would see God calling out the names of things. In verse 5, he called the light day and darkness night. In verse 8, he called the expanse between the waters heaven. And in verse 10, he called the dry land earth and the water seas. Now, God brings every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens to the man. So the man can give them names. This act of naming shows man's authority over the animals. And God can use animals as he wills. But only man is invited to to join with God, much like being alongside God in his work. And it appears, when you look at the last part of verse 20, that after having named all the animals that were presented to him, the man had become aware of something. He had looked at all these animals, and each of them had a, a mate that corresponded to them. And Adam didn't see such a thing that looked like him. Now, God sees this, and he knows that it's not good, and, but he will make it good. Israel would see that man is given responsibility in the work that God is doing. And in the same way, Israel has been chosen by God to share in his work. God is going to provide a land where Israel will dwell. Israel will participate in the securing of that land. They are called to be courageous, and fight for the land, trusting God for the ultimate victory. Therefore, Israel should focus on holding fast to God's promises and doing the hard work of obedience rather than fighting amongst amongst each other. They should see that God is operating his plan, working through them to bless all nations. If there is any need, God will provide. Similarly, God calls us, his church, to work. God calls us to proclaim the gospel locally into remote parts of the world, working with him on his mission to make disciples of all nations. We attend to his word, anchor ourselves in the truth. We put on love and humility as we go about our days. We commit to gather together with the saints and to love each other, encourage each other, and support one another. We go to work 
but we trust God for the results. <clears throat> the man and his creator are laboring together in God's work. The man has not seen any, corresponding, any creature corresponding to him, and God declares that this is not good. And in the final set of verses, we see God's solution. Starting at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God causes the man to sleep while he works on the final touch to creation. In order for the man to be fruitful and multiply, another who is like him is required. God creates woman out of a rib taken from man. And she's not exactly like him, but she is equal to him and will be just the helper that the man needs. When she is brought to the man, he exclaims, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And the words at last indicate, to me at least, that as all the animals passed by him for a name, he, that's when he really became aware that something was missing. And he took one look at the woman that God had created and, written, and said, finally, at last, this is the one perfect compliment to me. And, it, and her, he, he called her woman, which he wasn't giving her a name, but he was, it was almost like he was stuck in that mode of naming and categorizing because he was probably doing porcine, canine, you know, and then he went, woman, <laughs> you know. Um, and she gets her name in chapter 3. And it was just because she was taken out of man. Now, at this point, Moses interjects his own comment. When he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In essence, he's saying, this is why we do what we do regarding marriage. A new family unit is created, meaning that the man, and by implication the woman, is to leave the confines of the old family unit and be one with his spouse. And the bond is to have permanence. They are, the, they are to stick together like glue. The faithfulness called for here, it sets the stage for their being unashamedly naked, physically and psychologically. There's no fear of being judged or misused by each other. And for us, the same is true. It's why we do what we do because God instituted marriage. And of course, in many ways, sin makes that a struggle and can make it hard. But 
there's a remedy. We have Christ, and we have the Holy Spirit. And we can, again, focus on God and trust him and trust his power to help us and give us what we need. So, in conclusion, where have we been? There's hundreds of thousands of Israelites in the desert, upset, fearful, and grumbling. And Moses says, you know, you should really put your trust in God and follow him. And when they say, why, Moses? He says, because. In the beginning, God created the world and man out of nothing. He didn't have to, but he did. He placed that man in a nice garden, gave him rules so he could enjoy it and not get hurt. He gave him work to do, which in paradise actually brings pleasure. And when he saw a need, he filled the need. It's like, and this guy is your God. Okay, how can you not trust him? And we can take heart, too, in the fact that God knows our needs. He knows them before we do. And because we know that God is truly good, we can trust him to meet our needs. Because we know God is really good, we can trust his timing in meeting our needs. We may feel like we're in a desert, wandering, getting nowhere fast. But God sees, and he knows exactly what's going on. He's always working. He's working his plan. And through Christ, he promises never to leave or forsake us. We don't have to fear. We don't have to be in despair. We can trust the one who loves us, the one who died to give us life. And while we await Christ's return, take solace also in this. In John 14, 1 through 3, it reads, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I am so thankful that God goes and prepares a place for me. And I know he goes and prepares a place for you. And we can trust him. So there's about five things I want to leave with you to reflect on. And I know they're not up there, so I'll try to... They're not real long, so hopefully you won't have trouble if you want to write these down. The first is, you are special to God. You are special to God. And with that goes 1 Peter 2 and 9. that says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that he may proclaim the ex- that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are special to God. Number two, there is a place for you. There is a place for you. Acts 1.8 says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. There's somewhere on this big globe for you to work out your salvation. Number three, God's word is your best friend. 
God's word is your best friend. Psalms 119.9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By, guard, by guarding it according to your word. God's word is your best friend. Number four, your calling is not confined to getting into heaven. There is work for you to do. Your calling is not confined or limited to getting into heaven. There is work for you to do. Acts 2 and 42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Number five. God will supply what you need to carry out his work. God will supply what you need to carry out his work. Philippians 4, 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Thank you. Let us close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. We thank you for all scripture that you give us for, for teaching and correction. And um, just thank you that you loved us enough to reveal yourself to us. Thank you that you loved us enough to come after us, to seek us, to pull us out of our sin. Thank you that for Christ shed blood on the cross that made it possible for us to be reconciled to you and to be able to stand up and pray to you. We praise you for your great wisdom and your power. We love you for your mercy your tender care. Help us to serve you wherever we are. Help us to always be ready to um, be able to explain the hope that we have in you. Help us to be a testimony. Help us to be good witnesses in season and out of season when things are going great and when things don't look so great. Because we know we can put our hope in you. Help us to do that. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.